got to a certain point where the trail goes by the side of a lake. And across the lake is this huge mountain and a beautiful tumbling glacier comes from the summit of this mountain into the lake. And about every 10 minutes, so an iceberg would calve off this glacier into the lake. It was just extraordinary. And this happened as I was walking. And I was mm-hmm. so shocked by the beauty of it. Here's an experience of tapas. I was so shocked by the beauty of it that it, it totally shocked me out of my mopey frame of mind. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, this voice in my heart spoke without words and said, I am always with you. The most loving, the most reassuring voice. Mm. That's the voice of divinity, the voice of grace, the voice of the guru. Mm. It's a loving voice, a motherly voice, a quiet voice. It speaks in your heart without words. It doesn't use language. So that's, that's the thing to listen for. Hey there, everybody, and welcome back for Episode 7 of Contemplate This. This interview is with Dr. Stephen Parker, whom I consider to be one of my primary teachers in the realm of contemplative practices. So I'm pretty excited to share him and his wisdom with all of you out there listening. Dr. Parker was initiated in the Himalayan yoga tradition by Swami Veda Bharati and was given the initiate name of Stoma back in 1971. Not to make him feel bad, but that was just a couple years before I was born. So he's been doing this for longer than I've been alive. Since that time, he has dedicated himself to the study and the teaching of the Himalayan yoga lineage or tradition that traces back through Swami Veda Bharati and Swami Rama. He also holds a Doctor of Psychology, and until his recent retirement, he worked as a licensed clinical psychologist in St. Paul, Minnesota. In fact, I first met Stephen when I worked with him briefly in therapy, but he quickly became a spiritual friend and mentor. I've been fortunate to have met many wonderful teachers on my contemplative path, and I consider Stephen to be one of my primary teachers, especially in the yoga tradition. I received initiation from him in 2013. In a recent conversation, I was trying to figure out what to name or label our relationship. Was he my guru, my initiator, my teacher, etc.? So I asked him in one of our conversations how he would describe the nature of our, what I saw as a very student-teacher relationship. He paused, he smiled, and then he said, Friends. In our friendship, he has helped me to appreciate how yoga is not so much a specific religion, such as Hinduism, which most people would probably identify it with, at least in the West, but as he calls it in this podcast, yoga as a science of spiritual development. This approach forms an integral part of my own interspiritual approach to contemplative practice from within the Christian tradition, and I'm particularly grateful to the yoga science of practice and Stephen's teachings for me in that tradition for the way it helps me to fully engage my body in contemplative practice. Personally, I have found it to be the single most effective way to deal with a lifelong struggle with anxiety. 
As always, you can buzz over to my website at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash episode seven. That's episode and the number seven with no spaces. In order to view the show notes and find links to additional resources, including Stephen's recent book called Clearing the Path, The Yoga Way to a Clear and Pleasant Mind, Patanjali, Neuroscience, and Emotion. And for those of you listening, I continue to be grateful for your support for the Contemplate This podcast. As always, you can donate to support this free media at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash donate. And any help with writing reviews on iTunes or other hosting sites or promoting the podcast to friends via word of mouth or on social media is always much appreciated. So with that, thanks for listening, and let's get right into my interview with Dr. Stephen Stoma Parker. Well, Stephen, thank you for being here this morning. Most welcome. Yeah. So I always ask people to start with just a little introduction to who you are, where you are in the world, what your practice or tradition that you're coming out of is. Well, I, I come out of several traditions. Um, Primarily at this point, out of the tradition of yoga meditation and uh, out of the Himalayan tradition of Swami Rama or the Himalayas. Um, but I am also, I often tell people, a genetic Anglican. And uh, I, I'm sure we'll get into some of that history as we go along. So I'll, I'll save, so. That, save that for then. Um, I was a practicing psychotherapist for 35 years and retired about a year ago. Uh, and in the last 10 years have become uh, very much involved with uh, teaching and training uh, really all over the world, doing a lot of yoga teacher training and leading spiritual retreats, uh, several annual silent retreats in Europe and uh, uh, Europe and also in South America. And uh, that really keeps me quite busy, actually. Uh, two years ago, I was only home for two months. So it was a very demanding schedule, and I'm trying to give myself a little bit more rest at this point <laughs> with greater or lesser success. Mm -hmm. But that's sort of where things are at the moment. I still see, I still see a few people on a one-to-one um, -one basis um, for mostly spiritual coaching, meditation coaching. Mm -hmm. um, and... Uh, and that sort of keeps my interest in the change processes that people go through going. Yeah. And that's, that's sort of, uh, I'll say more in the intro that I create for the podcast, but that's sort of how we know each other as well is through those yeah. ongoing dialogues, which I've greatly appreciated. Mm -hmm. um, well, we can, which thread do you want to pull first? Do you want to go with um, Swami Rama and yoga or your, um, forget how you put it, your Anglicanism. <laughs> you just, you just ask your questions. Okay. So, well, let's, let's maybe go back, um, to like where you grew up. Uh, what kind of, was there any exposure to contemplative practice, spirituality, religious tradition, um, in family that kind of peaked in early interest or even early experiences that maybe you look back on as like, Oh, those were pointing me in a particular direction. Well, I, I was born in, in southwestern Nebraska, way out in the middle of nowhere, about 250 miles from Denver. And uh, our, our family religious tradition was Methodist. And 
I was always a pretty religious kid. I'm the eldest in my family. And, um, but in addition to that, there was always this uh, interest in contemplative spirituality and in the spiritual side of religious practice mm-hmm. uh, that went well beyond the religion that I knew. Uh, we lived for a while in Milwaukee, for example, and uh, it was kind of hilarious. I used to keep a little altar in my, uh, in my bedroom, mm. you know, a little sort of Catholic altar. And this, this <laughs> caused my parents to wrinkle their foreheads from time to time. And I used to do things like watch the masses on TV, and I even watched Bishop Sheen, for Pete's sake. Oh, wow. <laughs> so uh, there was an attraction to a more liturgically conservative kind of Christianity that doesn't have any explanation in my current life. Hmm. Um, and my guess is that this has to come from some kind of past life experience. Um, I had quite an epiphany about this when I... Uh, I was a, a Morris dancer, which is a form of English folk dancing. And at one point, my Morris dance group took a tour in uh, the British Isles, hosted by some local Morris teams. And the first place we went was Windsor. And uh, on that first weekend, it was, it was a hilarious experience to be providing the local color for tourists as a Minnesotan. <laughs> in fact, some of the first people we met asked us about Morris dancing and we explained it a little bit and we said, well, we're not really from here. We're from Minneapolis, Minnesota, the U S and they said, Oh, we're from St. Paul. (laughs) (laughs) But one of the other things that happened at Windsor was, um, friend wanted to see the, the garter chapel in St. George's and was so cheap. She didn't want to pay four quid to get in. (laughs) So we decided to go to church on Sunday morning. And uh, sitting in that space, in that architectural space, with that liturgy, uh, with with all of the sort of cultural elements of Anglican Christianity there, it felt like my DNA was vibrating. I had the most unusual sort of epiphany there Mm. uh, in terms of um, feeling my ethnic Englishness, Mm. feeling a sense of spirituality that was rooted in the soil that I was standing on. And this is something that I think Americans generally miss. We don't have an indigenous, indigenously rooted spirituality. Yeah. And, and that's why I often tell people when they ask me, what kind of Christianity did I practice? I usually say I'm, I'm a genetic Anglican. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and so I came back. I also realized at that moment, in addition to everything else, I'm also a gay man and had struggled as so many of us do for years with spiritual and religious issues around sexuality. And, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I realized that I had inherited this enormous wound from my religious upbringing about you can be a spiritual person or a sexual person, but not both. And I think every Christian has to come to terms with this in some fashion. And I realized that this was still, this was still there in me, and I had to go back into my original tradition to sort of find a way out of it. And so I went back home and was rebaptized in the Anglican Church in 1985. And... Uh, common for Anglicans to rebaptize? It seems like they wouldn't. Well, they, I mean, I was not an Anglican before. I was a Methodist yeah, before. Right. And, you know, because of some of the sort of canon law connections between Anglicanism and, and uh, Catholicism, uh, baptism into the church is important. Yeah. In terms of things like taking communion. So. Oh, yeah. Okay. I was just curious. Yeah. Um, not that those political considerations mean a great deal to me. I mean, when I think of baptism, I think of it for spiritual reasons. Right. But 
so I did that. And, and after a while in the particular church I belonged to, I was sort of, there were some sexual orientation politics that were not very pleasant at the time. And so at a, I joined a congregation of predominantly GLBT people who were all sort of refugees from liturgically conservative churches, even though this congregation ended up in the United Church of Christ. And so we basically celebrated a, a right to liturgy, hmm. uh, uh, Anglican right to liturgy every week. So it was a fine place for me. And uh, I actually learned so much there. And it was a congregation where people really needed to do the work themselves. And so we wrote the liturgy. I was preaching a couple times a year. I would celebrate communion on a regular basis. Um, so I was practically, I was certainly a lay minister. Yeah. Um, and, and really enjoyed that quite a bit. In fact, to the point where I even <laughs> recently at the request of one of my students who wanted me to conduct the wedding, I actually became a certified wedding officiant in Minnesota for that purpose. So the Christian side of, of my upbringing is fairly strong, and, and I really appreciate the education that I got in theology um, as a result of that, because I think it helps me to translate the spirituality of yoga into terms that people understand in this culture and, and also help them to find a version of Christianity that feels more, um, more satisfying to them in terms of, of what it offers them. Um, in contemplative terms. And so that, that's been a really, really good thing. Yeah. You know, the yoga part, um, I always had a, a bit of curiosity in the back of my mind about meditation and about Indian spirituality. I can actually remember feeling this curiosity in middle school as we were going through those topics in social studies. And in my heart of hearts said to myself, you know, you need to learn some more about this at some point in your life. And actually, not that long afterwards, three, four years later, in 1970, at the age of 19, one of my mentors in school, my former debate coach, came to me. He also taught a humanities course, and uh, this course had uh, all lecturers. And so he said, I'm, I'm having a Hindu priest come this Thursday to talk about uh, yoga and meditation. You might be interested. And uh, I certainly was, based on this previous curiosity that I had felt. And that's actually when I met my principal spiritual mentor in life, uh, Dr. Usherbert Arya, who became Swami Veda Bharati. Um, at the time, he was a professor of Sanskrit and South Asian studies at the University of Minnesota. Um, and I had never, I heard that lecture and I had never encountered a mind like this. Um, and having known him for now, let's see, 1970 to 2015, 45 years, hmm. my sense of wonder about the nature of his mind has only deepened and broadened. Hmm. Um, really, really extraordinary person. And so I began taking meditation classes from him not long after that, was initiated uh, into the yoga tradition in 1971 in the summer. Um, and then began to participate regularly in retreats and activities. At one point, the uh, local community, the Meditation Center in Northeast Minneapolis, founded uh, an actual center. And uh, this was in an old convent in Northeast Minneapolis. And it was large enough to uh, enable people to live there in a residential community. And so I joined that residential community for a year. 
hmm. which was really quite an interesting experience. And, uh, and it kind of went from there. And, and at a certain point, um, you know, these questions of sexuality and uh, stuff are always pressing at people in their early 20s. And part of the dark side of my reason for living in that community was to get a vacation from all of that, which yeah. is always a mistake. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you think you think you're getting a vacation and then it just comes up in the silence, right? right? Somehow it's going to propel you into uh it's going to propel you into the into the issue. And yeah. uh, so it did. And at a certain point I needed to go off and and just resolve this for myself. Um and uh, also was in the process of establishing a career at the time. So that took a lot of time away from active involvement with the meditation center for a few years. Yeah. Um, but I, I was back into it in the eighties and, uh, and ever since really. And, uh, a lot, a lot has happened since then. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess to the extent that you're comfortable sharing publicly, because I I think a lot of people uh, regardless of your sex, gender, sexual orientation, I think struggle with how to integrate sexuality, spirituality, religious belonging. And um, I don't know, do you have any insight from either personally how you worked through some of that and or kind of general thoughts on that topic? I, I cannot claim to have the final word. Well, nobody does. I have, I <laughs> if have, you did, then then we would really need to promote this podcast. I ha- I have a certain distance along the along the path, however. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that just to share something very personal, one of the things that used to just bother me no end was when I would sit in my meditation during the time I was living there at the center. Um, I would become so aroused mm. in the midst of the meditation, and at the time, I felt a horrible sense of shame about that. Yeah. Um, and I didn't realize until later on, I mean, even though I had heard, you know, the lectures about what the yogis have to say about this, about the, the closeness of, of mystical experience to sexual experience, um, that when the cosmic lover comes close to you, your body responds. And I really didn't understand that for quite a while. I mean, it took, it took some time and, diffusing that sense of shame was, was really a, a project of some years. Um, <clears throat> along the way, my, I mean, at first, uh, the solution that uh, Swami Veda had for me was just to become a monk and be celibate. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, that might work for some people, but, you know, the question that came up in my mind was, how can I renounce a sexuality I don't even own yet? And when that <laughs> When that thought crossed my mind, I wasn't even thinking about the gay part. Sure. So just the sexual energy in general, right. no matter where it's directed. Yeah, it just, it just yeah. didn't make any sense at all. And, yeah. uh, and I think that view has strengthened over the years as I work with people who are interested in pursuing a celibate vocation. In all my time of talking to people in their 20s with that ambition, I can think of only one person who was really a candidate. Mm. He was a Taiwanese fellow whose uh, father is a Buddhist monk and who really does seem to have really uh, sorted out his issues about sexuality and is really prepared, genuinely prepared to be celibate and has something of a gift in that regard also. Yeah. 
Otherwise, I think it's not a good idea for people to enter a celibate life young. Yeah. You really should taste the world before you decide to set it down so that you know what you're, what you're doing. Um, I think that's very important. So I uh, found a partner and have been in a relationship now for about 25 years. And uh, about the last decade of that, I have been living under a vow of celibacy Hmm. as what in Hindu uh, uh, religious tradition is called a vanaprastha, a forest dweller. They have these four stages of life that basically correspond to four quartiles of a century long life. The first quartile as as a student, second quartile as a householder, you know, making a family, uh, creating wealth for the support of society, the third quartile in spiritual practice to prepare for renunciation, and then the fourth quartile as a renunciate monk. Mm. Uh, whether I actually take those final vows is up in the air at this point. At the moment, I'm disinclined to do it just because of the way that people's relationship to you changes when you become a monk. Yeah. And there's just a lot more uh, goofy stuff you have to cut through in order to have a genuine connection with people. And I'm, I don't have time for that. Um, so we'll see, we'll see what happens with that. Um, I also think it's important for people to see me with my partner from time to time, because there are lots of people out there still who have questions about uh, sexuality and sexual orientation, and they need to know that there's somebody who they can talk to. Oh man. Yeah. When you say lots of people, that's an understatement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Seems like a real um, potential gift. Now, do you, I haven't yet picked up your book, but do you get into that? Do you deal with yeah. sexuality in there? Yeah, some. Mm-hmm. And I, I deliberately put some exercises into the back of the book for people to sort of track their sexual experience in terms of some things like making, I mean, I think just as a therapist, I think one of the important developmental transitions people need to make, and this is, for, this is more true for males than females, is to make a transition from um, uh, the sort of excitement-related sexual experience that we have when we're young, based on the dopamine system in the brain, to an affection and bonding-based sexuality that's dominated by the, the uh, oxytocin system. Um, and I think if you make that transition, it ends up being a really good thing for relationships because it sort of gets you out of the kind of standard icons of attractiveness that we all develop for ourselves as we're growing up. Um, and you begin to orient your sexual energy towards celebrating the, um, the, the qualities of personality in your partner. And it becomes an energy that sort of propels you into a deeper sense of intimacy. And, you know, from a meditative perspective, I would argue that if monogamy is good for anything, and it's, I mean, it's difficult for a lot of people. If monogamy is good for anything, it is a form of concentration. Mm. It's a form of training your mind to have a one, a single pointed focus and to go deep within that focus. And that's the real purpose for it. I mean, and there's all sorts of political baggage. Sure. Oh, you think? Yeah. In terms of the history of marriage in the, in the church. And, uh, you know, the, the, the history of marriage in Western culture is as a way of certifying the succession of property. It actually is an economic institution primarily. It Certainly under, we pick that up from uh, Roman law in particular. Right. 
Yeah. And that's, and that's one of the reasons why it didn't become a sacrament until the 12th century. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think some revision in our notions of what marriage means in Christian tradition is really important because I think a lot of the things that have come out of, of uh, church councils over the centuries have so limited the expression of sexuality in marriage that it's almost eliminated the ancient Jewish purpose of marriage, which was the enjoyment of each other's company, mm. in addition to procreation. I mean, procreation sure. is terribly important in the Jewish world because they had to keep their numbers up. <laughs> um, but companionship was also a really important value. And that sort of went out the window at the point where the church said that lovemaking activity that's non-procreative is prohibited. Yeah. Um, and there were actually people, there's evidence in the Gnostic Gospels, that there were evidence of people who were practicing, for example, non-ejaculatory forms of sexual expression. And these ended up being banned in the fourth century. And so that whole practice was just kind of dropped at that Mm. point. And those are some of the really important um, techniques of, of making that transition. Um, And so it, it, it cuts us off from an ability to sort of take, the sexual side of marriage into the spiritual experience. It makes it much, much more difficult to do that. And that, that part of Christianity needs to change. And that's one of the reasons, that's one of the parts of Christianity I do not subscribe to. Uh, It's interesting. I just taught, I think I've talked to you about this previously, but I just taught sexual ethics for the uh, first time. And it was far and away the hardest class I've ever taught. Oh, that must have been a really interesting experience. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> so going through the, the history of different teachings, not, I mean, and it goes all the way down. It's not just teachings about what marriage is or about what sexuality is, but it gets really deeply into what's the nature of being these embodied creatures and why we were given these desires in the first place. Um, and there's so, so many interesting pieces of it um because you were talking before about the erotic side of the mystical or the cosmic lover and um i'm often sort of fascinated by the the most commented book of scripture among the medieval monastics was the song of songs which is an erotic love poem Um, of course and they were interpreting that allegorically as one's relationship with god and uh and, and it is, but their yeah. hidden, hidden agenda was to take the sex out of it. Well, right. Yeah. So you can have the allegory. I think that's part of what maybe we're struggling with is like how to keep, how do we keep both? Now it's ironic that in the Christian tradition, right? Our, our basic core teaching is that the human and the divine literally walked on the earth united. And yet we're still struggling with how to keep both the, the mystical erotic with the embodied and, and the, the connection with a, a physical human being. Right. Yeah. And, and the, the direct presence of divinity is an erotic proposition. Mm-hmm. It isn't necessarily a sexual proposition because that has mostly to do with bodies mm-hmm. and God is beyond bodies. Um, but erotic in the ancient Greek sense of the kind of, excitement that you feel when you get out on the growing edge of your life in whatever way. I mean, one of the, you know, at different phases in life, different things are sexy. You know, when you're, 
when you're um, when you're two years old, no, is sexy. <laughs> Because that's your developmental job. Your job is to create a sense of self. And you do that by drawing these boundaries all the time. And you say no, even if you don't mean no. Are you sure that only goes, I think it goes much longer than two. I mean, my oldest is nine. <laughs> well, sure. <laughs> I know, I'm, and, I'm joking, but yeah. And, you know, when, when we're adolescents, sex itself is sexy. Yeah. But as, as we move into early adulthood, um, romantic life and making a family becomes sexy. When you get older, even the prospect of moving into death becomes erotic mm. in, wow. the best of, in the best of situations. And, you know, there I often tell the story of a friend of mine who died six or seven years ago, somebody that I used to sing shape note music with. And, uh, this lady sent a, uh, an email out to the other members of the shape note group at one point and said, uh, I may not be able to come to our singings in the future because my Parkinson's disease has become terminal and I may be too disabled. But she said that may not be a problem because I also found out today I have stage four liver cancer and I will not live long. Wow. But she said, don't think I'm sad. Just come and sing with me, which I thought was extraordinary. And so I wrote her back and I said that, you know, yoga has some things that might be valuable when the time comes to leave the body. And I'd be happy to talk with you about that if you're interested. And she said, oh, yes, please come. And it sounds fascinating. Mm. And when I met with her, <clears throat> it was really interesting. She started the conversation by saying, Stephen, I am so excited. And I always quote her precisely. Stephen, I am so excited. I can hardly wait to die. What an adventure. What an amazing attitude. So full of joy. Yeah. And so full of love and so full of peace and a sense of excitement about the prospect of, of what comes next. And she actually she actually did leave the body five days later in that same state, really. So what's important to us becomes erotic based on whatever our developmental needs are at that time. Mm. Um and learning to channel erotic energy into our growth, wherever it takes us, is, you know, I think one of the deepest skills of living, uh, living a skillful spiritual life. And a lot of our problems in life have to do with the misdirection of those energies um, and the way that it gets siphoned off into, uh, well, the yogis would say simply following our instinctive desires. And when they talk about instinctive desires, their, their sense of libido includes more than sexuality. It includes uh, sex, uh, but also food, sleep, and self-preservation. Which What's really fascinating <clears throat> listening to this as, a, as a, somebody who studied the work of Thomas Aquinas is he identifies those exact same energies as, he calls them our natural inclinations, Right. And then the virtue has to do with channeling those energies towards truly life-giving pursuits versus following them into dissipative or pursuits that sort of stoke them in, in, a, in a kind of craving way rather than in a genuinely connecting and satisfying way. Well, and even a lot of the common religious interpretations of how to do that end up potentiating this problem. For example, if you look at the religious traditions of fasting in various traditions, 
you know, we have a nice 40-day fast during Lent. Then on Easter morning, big binge. Gangbusters, yeah. <laughs> or, you know, how many, how many, those of, those of, for those people who know some Muslims, how many Muslims will tell you they actually gain weight during Ramadan? Mm, mm-hmm. you know, they, they eat or drink nothing while the sun's above the horizon, but when the sun goes down, party. Yeah. And it's usually a pretty good party. Um, <laughs> And, and so, so many of our commonplace traditions of fasting, as an example of this, have a kind of binge and purge aspect to them that's not very helpful in terms of changing your habits and changing how you redirect those energies. In fact, I think one of the most important things that I learned over the years from Swami Veda was his statement that the practices of austerity, of tapas, are not about self-denial, as we often think, but they're really about learning to enjoy with concentration. Mm. You learn to fast not by denying yourself food, but by really tasting your food. And if you really taste your food with concentration, the satisfaction that your mind gets from that enhanced concentration, the joy that comes from it, satisfies the desire. And so you naturally will begin to eat less. It's a way to naturally reduce your emotional appetite for food. And, and, you know, it's a commonplace thing in therapy to observe how how much people eat from emotions. Sure. Rather than from any sense of hunger. Um, And that's true in all of those areas, what my guru called for primitive fountains of emotion in which I, you know, I think the word primitive has a kind of negative connotation to it. So I, I recast that in my book to be primary fountains. Yeah. Um, and so I really am sorry, I guess I'm sort of taking a similar view to St. Thomas Aquinas in that regard. Um, For the interesting analogs between traditions that they're observing a similar phenomenon. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. What I find you sent me some articles recently and I can't remember which one it was in or if, if it was one that you wrote or one of your teachers, but something that stuck with me that I found really helpful is um, that was talking about fasting specifically with regard to food and drink was um, the idea of not thinking about, you know, I have to give up all sugar <laughs> or right. all caffeine, but to say maybe that last cookie isn't necessary or maybe while I'm at dinner with friends, I don't really need that. I don't need a refill on my wine or whatever. And, uh, I, and, and then coupling that with then enjoying what I do have instead of just getting caught up in the craving. When I'm, when I'm really tasting something, it's much easier for my mind to do exactly what you were describing when somebody offers me more as they often do. I mean, sure. One of my problems in terms of weight management is being a victim of hospitality nine or 10 months (laughs) a year. And, um, and it's much easier for me at this point when I'm really tasting my food, when somebody brings me some more to say, do you really need more of that? Didn't, didn't you taste that before? Mm -hmm. Do not, do not remember Mm. what that tastes like. (laughs) (laughs) And that makes it much easier to say, no, thank you. Um, uh, And it, it reminds me that, my appetite has been satisfied. Um, and I found it really helpful. Uh, it broadened my understanding of what I think of as fasting, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to um, like you, you mentioned Lent before, right? It's like, okay, I'm going to 
make this really concerted effort for 40 days. But uh, it's been a way for me to kind of bring a spiritual practice into the everyday and, right. and think of that as a form of fasting or asceticism, as we might right. call it. Uh, exactly. And but I without think- having to be totally austere because... <laughs> I'm not, uh, I'm not in a monastery. <laughs> well, without having to live a stereotyped form of austerity. Yeah, well, that's a good you know, way. The, the austerity we're talking about isn't about self-denial. It's about, um, it's about replacing an experience of pleasure with an experience of joy. Hmm. That's a terribly important thing to remember in, in pursuing this. Um, it's about finding an experience of beauty in the tasting that you're doing. And there is a, a meditative science in yoga called Sri Vidya. It's one of the disciplines of the tantric system that is constantly pursuing this experience of transcendent beauty, which is what is meant by the word Sri. Um, when you address somebody in India in a formal way, you either call them for a male Shri or for a female Srimati. Srimat or Srimati, uh, which means one who is possessed of that kind of beauty. Mm. Uh, and mm. this transcendent beauty is, is the basic experience of divinity. Um, and in, in the Sri Vidya system, the chief divinity is this female entity called Trikura Sundri, the beauty of the three worlds. Huh which Swami Veda identified as Beatrice in Dante's Commedia. Oh yeah. Cool. He said, in fact, he said, this is not, this is not, a, these are not metaphors. He's not just writing poetry here. These, this is a catalog of meditative experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would, I would love sometime to teach Tantra in the West from Dante. <laughs> that would be <laughs> so cool. Would be very cool. Yeah. And, and that kind of, idea is is really what's behind this notion of austerity that you find these experiences of beauty that's that really satisfy your heart in a way that the pleasure cannot because of course the hunger will always return Hmm. Um, one of the things that really turned my mind about this was reading uh, john howell's beautiful little book about saint francis called the ecstasies of saint francis Hmm. and he makes the argument that francis was really a, a looking at it from a comparative religion point of view, a tantric practitioner in this sense. And it really opened my eyes to the fact that, you know, so, so many times people look at Francis austerity and they think, Oh my God, how he must have suffered. And I don't think he suffered at all. Mm. Um, Doesn't seem whole, like it. I mean, the whole thing was this incredible celebration of his marriage to lady poverty. And he discovered the trimming down of his ego as a way to find more and more joy. So he would see a beggar approaching him on the road with rattier clothes than his, and he would bow down to the beggar and, you know, beg him passionately to trade clothes with him on the spot. You know, it was a little like Alberto Benini on, uh, after he won the Academy Award, he went on, uh, on the Conan O'Brien show and he actually persuaded Conan O'Brien to trade clothes with him on stage. <laughs> it's crazy. But it was, it was a very similar kind of passion that he had Yeah, that persuaded O'Brien to go along with this. And, and mm-hmm. I think Francis also had that joyful sense of passion um, in how he did these things. And uh, I mean, he did in the end of his life regret a little bit how hard he was on his body. You know, he said, I think I was, 
I was rather hard on brother ass. Um, but on the whole, on the whole, uh, his path was really a path of joy. Yeah. And to pursue it any other way is, is, is sinful. I mean, it really cuts you off from divinity. Yeah. I think we're struggling or, well, uh, maybe I'll speak for myself personally, but I think it resonates with a lot of other people that we're, we're really struggling to regain that, that joy. Um, Cause we've been told that, that, that the joy is sinful. Right. Somehow we got that wire crossed. Well, we, we have a hard time crossed. with the distinction between joy and pleasure and they're very, yeah. uh, pleasure is the, is the satisfaction of a basic desire and joy is pure exaltation. And it's, it's the, I mean, even if you look at it from a neuro, neuroscience point of view, joy is this sort of reward system that's built into us to help us continue to grow. It, it's something that we feel when we use the most human part of our brain and nervous system, the middle prefrontal cortex, which is what organizes and rewires the rest of the nervous system. And so the more you develop that part of your, your uh, functioning, the more joy you feel. Hmm. And you do that by cultivating a sense of moment-to-moment awareness. This is where the mindfulness practices of Buddhism and of yoga become so important. And even though there are lots of people who try to argue that those two things are different, they're not. Um, and uh, this is a point that Swami Veda, who was a very great scholar of, Buddhist pra- of both a, a Buddhist practitioner and a, a scholar of that tradition, made very clear he said all these different methods of meditation are simply different starting points and the the deeper you go in them the more they converge Mm. so for example in the research literature on meditation now there's this distinction arising between uh, so-called the shamatha meditations meditations that work on concentrating on an object like a mantra Uh and then vipassana which is a more open focus kind of mindfulness just being aware of whatever comes up in your mind field and uh you know people are sort of reifying this distinction as being a, a through and through difference and it's not i mean they're they're as swami veda used to say they're not different they are two different facets of the same experience once mm. you get to a deep enough level with them and that's it's like, it's like you do both of them simultaneously or you do both of them at different layers of the mind field. You're touching on something that I have been thinking about recently mm-hmm. in my own practice of centering prayer, which is just over two decades now and still is kind of a foundational practice to me. There's the practice of uh, noticing when I'm engaged with thoughts or sensations or memories or emotions and then returning to the sacred word very gently and um, not, not pushing, not, not striving in any way to, to get rid of that experience, but um, just allowing it to be without engaging it. And what I've, there, there's a similar kind of debate that I've been tracking a little bit between whether or not centering prayer is more of the open field of awareness or concentrative on an object where you could see the word as concentrative and then the release as open field. And um, Cynthia Brazolt talks about this in her book that I've been reading recently um, on non-dual awareness. Mm -hmm. And I've kind of been playing with this idea that 
in, at least in my experience, centering prayer is kind of both. And I, I like the way you put it, that it's, it can be both at the same time. Right. Because in the moment, although it's not a mantra, I'm not repeating it constantly while I'm doing my practice. When I do engage with or notice that I'm engaged with thoughts, there's a, there's a momentary concentration there on the sacred word. Right. That, but then it's that sacred word is the symbol of, of release. And then it's an iterative process. Right. Uh, so this like, is actually helpful. I, I haven't right, quite articulated this before, but I think it's important. I think the relationship, I, the relationship between these two is sort of complementary and paradoxical. Um, it's a koan. Hmm. You can't enter into this state with your ordinary discursive mind. You have to destroy the operation of your discursive mind in order to go to the depth where those two things are one and the same. Yeah. And um, he potentially explains this process very, very well, I think, in his Yoga Sutras as he talks about the transition from the outer limbs of yoga practice, the ethical practices, yama and niyama, working with the body in asana, working with the breath in pranayama. And then you have this stage, pratyahara, which is often translated as sensory withdrawal, but it's, it's really about the transition from the outer experience of your life to the inner experience of your life. And when you do that well, and when you really do the work, particularly of emotional purification, so that the conflicts and um, the emotional noise that draws your mind away from a focus is quieted, and the prana is flowing in a very relaxed and quiet way without any effort, then this whole process of going internal becomes very spontaneous and very easy. It's not an effort at all. And the process of pratyahara, which many people in yoga describe as a gradual process, actually it's not a gradual process at all. It's a flipping. It's a sudden flip. And what happens is the, the mind disconnects from the senses and sort of dissolves in its own mind field. So at that point, the mind has nowhere to go but to focus on the object of concentration. And so this gradual process of intensifying concentration, which is described in three steps in yoga, concentration, which is holding a focus, a one-pointed focus, uh, meditation, which is extending that focus, and then samadhi, where the process of perception, the perceptual triangle of observer, object, and observation process all collapses into a singularity. And you see an object as it is. It's the only place you can actually see things as they are, is in, in the experience of samadhi. Um, and that whole process potentially describes what this term samyama. Um, and this, and I think one of the reasons for doing it that way is to show how this becomes just uh, a gradually, um, naturally intensifying sense of concentration that happens if you've done the preliminary homework hmm. and that takes you deep. And once you reach that stage of samadhi, then you have both things. You have the ability uh, for the, the concentrated focus and also the uh, ultimate open field mindfulness. Mm. at the same moment. I'm letting that soak in a little bit, mm -hmm. but it, it's helpful. I think um, to think about in that state that both modalities of 
being engaged become possible, perhaps even at the same time, like you said, as a paradox or as a koan? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a kind, it's a level of, of our mind field that we just don't ordinarily have access to. Yeah. And I, I, I like the, high, the, the insistence that if we do the preliminary work and allow and follow that process and sort of get, the, get our junk out of the way, so to speak, yeah. that there is something about it that unfolds naturally. Right. Um, and maybe that's part of why, I don't know if this is true in, say, Hinduism or something, but certainly in the Christian tradition, there's a long history of distrust of the contemplative or the mystical because it, I think when you do that flip uh, to the interior and you really give yourself over to trusting the flow of, we were, of grace in that process, the external authorities become um, obviously less important. Uh, it's, I think most mystics recognize them. They don't, they don't want to get rid of them, but they're, they don't have the same kind of authority and that can be threatening. Is there a is well, there any this, kind of this is this is a really interesting difference between Christianity and, and Hinduism? I think. Yeah, I'm curious about this. A genuine difference because, yeah. of course, in, in <laughs> the great thing about Hinduism is in Hinduism there is no external authority. <laughs> I mean, it's but there just, are priests, right? And and who? Yeah, there are priests, and there are rules of conduct and all of that sort of stuff. Different ones for different sects, but there's nobody who sort of enforces the same behavior on everybody. Mm. Um, and in the, in the Indian tradition, there is a, an exalted reverence for mystical experience that transcends any rule and, uh, uh, a deeply spiritual Indian will always recognize that in another person, even if it looks crazy on the outside. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think their sense of natural reverence for mysticism is really in the right place. I think a lot of the suspicion of that in Christianity has to do with the fact that very early in its history and around, you know, around the time that Constantine made it the state religion of Rome, that the institution became more interested in its own integrity than in the spiritual experience of its members. Yeah. And that was a real tipping point. Yeah. In terms of, I mean, if I, if I think of sort of a, I don't even believe in the doctrine of original sin, really. But if, if there was an original sin in Christianity, <laughs> I think that was that was the point where it, it began. Um, and as a result of that, you're right. I mean, the, the church over the centuries has paid very little attention to its advanced practitioners. And that's, I mean, if you look at it from sort of outside the tradition, you kind of scratch your head about that. Why, yeah. why, would, they, why would they do it that way? Um, but that's because the whole question of administering an institution and living a spiritual experience are very different matters. Yeah. And, um, and I think it, it speaks very well to the, the long tradition of, of mysticism and monastic endeavor in Christianity, that people continue to, um, follow those spiritual vocations. Um, it's very important because that's, the, the sort of waves of renewal that divinity seems to send into the church comes in the form of these extraordinary people, like in our own times, Pio, um, or Teresa Neumann, 
in uh, in Austria, the the stigmatists that appear from time to time, mm. or some of these other extraordinary people, and you know their mission is to try to find some way uh, to renew the spirituality of the church. And one of the things I really am enjoying about this this pope that we have is that <laughs> he has some reverence for the importance of that, and for for I mean I. The other day when he said, it's more important to be a good person than to be a Catholic. I mean, what Pope has ever said that before? <laughs> My God. And so, I mean, I think in many ways, so many ways, his heart is really in the right place. And, uh, you know, he sort of very casually and very personally cast aside the doctrine of, of infallibility the other day when he admits to making a mistake about, his judgment in the sexual abuse case in uh, Chile. Yeah. Um, and he allows him, he allows other people to see him as a human being doing his best to be a good priest to the church. Uh, and I think that's, that's all you can ask. Yeah. Hmm. So I, I just think that whole development has been so, so beautiful and so good for Christianity and people feel it. I mean, what's really interesting to watch is how inspired Protestants get. Yeah. <laughs> about yeah. the Pope. I mean, yeah. you really can see this. Um, and, you know, they watch, they watch him as carefully as the Catholics do, really. Yeah. Um, it's certainly been nourishing for me and lots of other people that I've spoken with. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Something I wanted to circle back around to um, is if you could explain a little bit that lineage through Swami Veda Bharati and Swami Rama, I think uh, a lot of people listening might not maybe know that lineage. And I think a helpful touch point might be, um, how would you place that tradition that you are uh, you know, actively engaged in and formed by and teaching out of in dialogue with uh, what uh, some people would call American yoga, which is kind of the... Um, I don't know. It's almost, it's focused more on a kind of uh, athletic pursuit, right? Or a, a, a well-being pursuit. This question is a many faceted jewel. I know. <laughs> I realize they just <laughs> cracked open a big can of worms and we only have a half an hour left. So go. <laughs> People tend to look at, um, at yoga as Indian cultural property as Hindu cultural property. And the Indian government at this moment is unfortunately really stoking that interpretation. Hmm. And it's not appropriate because there are many, many contributions to the yoga tradition that come from religious traditions other than Hinduism, Jainism and Buddhism in particular. I mean, the whole notion of nonviolence came into Indian tradition through Jainism. Hmm. Hinduism picked it up from there. And we know this because it's very clear that uh, a lot of the early rituals involved animal sacrifices. Um, And so when I think of the yoga tradition, I think of a, a science of spiritual practice, which is common to many traditions. It's just a matter of learning to see the forms that it finds in the, in, in any spiritual tradition. And I think the deeper 
I often tell people the deeper you go in your meditative practice, the easier it is to see the parts of any tradition that are spiritually authentic. For example, you know, this whole notion of Kundalini and the chakras, this serpentine energy that flows along the spine in a human being and these energy centers that exist roughly parallel to physical nervous plexus. Um, we think of that as an Indian thing, but it's very clear that the Mayan Indians had a similar system that worked mm. exactly the same way. And instead of, um, um, I mean, it even uses a similar symbol. In, in the Indian tradition, the symbol is a, a cobra because they live with cobras. And uh, interestingly, the Mayan version is a feathered serpent. Hmm. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the deity. Um, no, it's not coming to me. Um, Joseph Campbell discusses some of these ways in which uh, these spiritual practices and themes go from tradition to tradition in his book, The Mythic Image, which was actually one of the books that Swami Veda asked us all to read when some of us were being trained to do initiations into yoga so that we could see how much these things go from tradition to tradition. People think of mantras as an Indian thing. Um, but even in the technical sense of how mantras work, you find very, very almost identical theories in the mystical texts of Judaism and Kabbalah even to the point of identifying many of the same sounds with the same energies. And, and the, the thing about the mantra tradition, when you really study it carefully, you realize after a while, this is just another language for quantum mechanics. Mm. That's a whole other subject. We won't even touch that. I know we've talked about that before. And it, yeah. But, you know, these mantras are, are vibrational building blocks of energy and matter. Um, and they do change not only your mind, but also your body over time as you use them. Um, and again, this is something that many, many traditions use. How many traditions have some form of taking the name of God in prayer as a practice? You know, just about every single one. And so I don't think of yoga as belonging to any particular cultural tradition. And so, I mean, this is something that does kind of come out of the lineage that I come from. My master, Swami Rama, um, was trained by a great, great yogi named Bengali Baba. Um, and Bengali Baba's master uh, was an Indian who lived in Tibet and who was the master of many of the contemporary meditation masters of the Tibetan tradition. Hmm. His name and identity are unknown. There is absolutely no information about him. And I, I don't know the reason why this is all kept quite so secret. But um, so there's a very strong aspect of, uh, of Buddhist spirituality also in the yoga tradition that we represent. When my master Swami Veda received his uh, meditation initiation from Swami Rama, one of the things that uh, Swamiji told him was, our job is to prepare the way for Maitreya, the Buddha to come. Even though most people would think of Swami Rama as a Hindu guru, mm. he also represented the energies of the deities, which can be expressed as Buddhist or Hindu or Christian or Nordic, all kinds of different forms of the same energies. Um, and so there's that aspect. There's the, the, 
Buddhist aspect. Um, in a previous incarnation, uh, Swami Rama was involved with the story of Jesus and his disciples. And so there's an aspect of our initiatory tradition that also reaches back to Jesus and his original band of disciples. Many of Swami Rama's teachers were great Sufi masters from the Muslim mystical tradition. And so he was very conversant with, uh, with Muslim tradition as well. Hmm. And I mean, these people among the masters of those traditions, there's, they respond to each other based on their yogic accomplishment, not based on their cultural identity. And so there were no conflicts between Hindu masters and, and Muslim masters. I mean, not the disciples are the ones who created sure. all of that. Yeah. You know, and that just becomes basically a political issue. Yeah. Um, you know, at its heart, there's no real difference between the spirituality of Islam and any other tradition. Spirituality is spirituality. In the same way that, uh, uh, as it says in the Quran, there is no God but God. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Swami Veda once uh, attended a conference of religious leaders in the Middle East, and he sat next to the, uh, the Lutheran bishop of Baghdad. And he asked him, he said, what, what word do you use for God in your liturgy? And he said, Allah. Allah mm -hmm. is the name for God in, right. in Arabic. And so in, in the Lutheran churches in Iraq, they worship Allah, you know, not quite the same way as the Muslims do, but there is no God but God. Right. What do you make so it's, of a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lineage and a tradition that tries to represent spirituality in a, in a, a kind of comprehensive form, in a form that, that can touch any tradition. And so when we have people, students who are deeply involved in a particular tradition, we try to teach them as much as possible from within their tradition. You know, we give Buddhist students Buddhist mantras. Christian students receive Christian mantras. Muslim students receive um, mantras from Quran. And uh, as someone who's charged with the responsibility of doing some of those initiations, I have a lot of homework to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. It keeps you, keeps you fresh, right? Definitely keeps me on my toes. So... I'm I, a question. Actually, I've been meaning to ask you this just personally as well for a while is um, there's the mantra initiation component of this particular tradition. And um, what is the relationship between that and transcendental meditation? Because there's, there is so much stuff out there about TM, like people either really love it or they really hate it. <laughs> um, well, they're actually very closely related traditions. Um, the master of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, um, Swami Brahmananda Saraswati, was one of Swami Rama's teachers. He was one of his principal teachers of Sri Vidya. Hmm. Uh, in fact, in the oral tradition of our tradition, um, it's said that, that Swami Rama actually spent some time teaching Mahesh Yogi about mantras. And so it, it's an authentic initiatory lineage. And so anybody initiated in that tradition can assume that their, their initiation is genuine. Um, the disappointment that I have about that tradition is that it's become so much about sort of figuring out a way to sort of monetize this. Mm. 
Um, and, you know, a, a lot of people who come to us from TM have been disenchanted with how much the teaching seems to be about making a buck. Um, they tend to charge a fair amount of money for an initial initiation. Last I heard it was somewhere in the vicinity of $2,500. Oh, wow. And in our tradition, people make a, people make a financial donation within their means. And that money isn't even allowed to be kept by the initiator. There's a special trust fund that Swami Rama established for supporting the medical care of sadhus and swamis in India. And all of the funds from our initiations go into that trust fund. Hmm. Um, so that it's, and, and that's actually one aspect of the teaching in our tradition is it is never done for a fee. Um, even in my own teaching and training that I do internationally, I, of course, I ask my hosts to cover travel expenses and then anything above and beyond that is an offering. And there are some times when there is nothing. Um, there are also times when people are very generous and so they yeah. seem, they kind of balance out and, one of the things I observe from the, this particular movement of Providence is that there's always enough. There's never a lot. It's just enough. Mm. And that's fine. It really teaches you what is enough, mm. which I, I very much like. Yeah. About that. Yeah. I got a question about it's kind of the spirituality of money. Um, Cause that's a, that's another one that our culture likes sex has a hard time with um, that we tend to, we kind of oscillate between the two extremes between money is a God and money is the root of all evil. And I'm asking on a personal level in part, because as somebody who does some like public spiritual teaching um, who also has a family to support, um, I'm struggling to kind of make sense out of how to, um, you know, receive financial reward for what I'm sharing in a way that feels spiritually appropriate. Um, while also recognizing that like, you know, I lay awake at night thinking about how I'm ever going to pay for my kids to go to school. (laughs) So like, I don't know how, how would you approach that? In the ancient tradition, um, the priestly class who were charged with primary task of cultivating their spirituality was taught never to handle money. When Swami Veda came to the United States for the first time or to the West, actually, he lived in uh, Guyana before he came to uh, the U S when he was asked to touch money, he had panic attacks Hmm. because it was something that was just absolutely forbidden in his tradition in the, in the traditional culture, village culture of India, the priest provided these spiritual services and everybody in the village knew the family of the priest, knew how they lived, knew what they needed. And so what would happen is when they needed a priestly service, they would bring food or they would bring cloth or they would bring, you know, something that um, some material aspect as an offering. Yeah. And it was always a mutual offering. The services were offered as a gift and the, the offering was also expected to be a gift. Um, a so just price, a real quick yeah. interjection. That's interesting how that parallels kind of in ancient Judaism and Israel, the, the right. initial idea of tithing 
was to support the Levites that were one of the 12 tribes who were charged with priestly activities who would then not be tending the fields and the flocks to support themselves. So everybody chipped in. Yep. Right. Anyways, keep going. And this aspect of making it a mutual offering is, is actually a really important part of that system because the minute you put a price on it, power, that's the entry point for power into a monetary transaction. I had a very interesting experience with this in Italy. A few years ago, I had a, one of my students, uh, had a guy who was a CEO in Padova in Italy. And he belonged to a group of CEOs and higher level executives that used to hold a little business conference on a quarterly basis to talk about new developments. And at that point, Swami Veda had written a little book called um, uh, Practical Spirituality in Everyday Life, I think, or something. It was really about this whole question of how do you live a spiritual um, life at work. And he was very interested in, in applying these principles in his company and wanted to share this with other people. So he asked me to come and do a presentation. And initially I thought, well, this will just, this will be a presentation about how, how mindfulness, you know, changes relationships for the better at work. And, and that was certainly part of it, but it got off at, a, at some point into a whole discussion of the critique of capitalist economics. <laughs> and, and I brought up this idea that, you know, compensation ought to be, process of mutual offering and ought not to have a price. And these executives got so excited about this. I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing from, you know, from a bunch of business people. Um, and when we had our, uh, this was all happening in a breakout session. When we came back into the larger group at the end of the day, the fellow who was sort of summarizing and talking about this was weeping as he talked. It was really interesting to see how deeply people felt the truth of this principle hmm. and obviously finding a practical way to do this. That's just and fair is difficult, but I think the effort to do something more along those lines is really important because the issues of power around financial transactions around these mutual offerings in the world is moving in the direction of greater inequality in every country and th that's going to move the world in the direction of greater and greater unrest and mm -hmm. conflict. So this, this entry point in terms of creating a price for that mutual offering is something that we, we have to find some way of dealing with my way of, and this is my way of dealing with it. And, and you know, so far it's enough. Now, granted, I don't have kids I have to put through college. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I made a decision early in my life as a therapist not to have biological children because I was concerned that I would not have enough left at the end of my day for my kids. Uh, I ended up with some voluntary children, and that's been a whole thing I never expected in my life, and that's been mm. a wonderful experience. But, you know, like you said, I don't have to put them through college. <laughs> um, and how, how we do all of these things, education, uh, and everything else I think is something that we need to, we really need to rethink hmm. and we need to probably devote more of our resources, uh, to many of these aspects of caring for people in the world that other countries do in a, in a just way by just providing it for everyone. And I think ultimately that's where we're headed. 
because we seem to be at very near um, a sort of endpoint about what capitalism can accomplish yeah. in a reasonable and just way. And, uh, you know, lots of people relate to money and markets as if they were divine. And this whole prosperity gospel in certain parts of Protestantism is just <clears throat> entirely heinous. Well, and I can assure you it's made its way into my, the Catholic world and probably <laughs> right. others as well. It's, it's, it's just its own right. I mean, not everybody, it, but it's, it's too easy. And I mean, in that regard, our current president is kind of a, a backhanded blessing to see that having a lot of money doesn't necessarily mean that you're blessed. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm sort of reflecting on our whole conversation so far and there are a lot of things that certain, I wouldn't use the term, but I could see certain religious adherents might consider quote heretical, but the comments you just made about the economy might be the ones that would actually really get you in trouble. Oh, I'm sure they would. <laughs> I'm sure they would. And, and the important thing there is that we need to find a way to take the pricing of the mutual offering out of the issue in a just way. That's yeah. going to be the, now obviously that's going to be the hard part. Mm. I think and, and you know, socialism was one effort to sort of move in that direction. And, you know, I think actually probably it's worth looking at it again, because as many as the, you know, the people who really study the so-called socialist states would say, um, you know, they never really even tried it that, you know, what, what happened in the Soviet union and in China is, and China's a great example of that in the current world is just oligarchic capitalism. That's all. Yeah. It yeah. It's not communism in any way, shape or form. Um, and, you know, if we don't do something to modify the pricing of the exchange of the most valuable thing people have to offer their time for the sustenance of their life, then the world is in deep trouble, mm. very, very deep trouble. And we would be entering a very dark period. So we got to do something about this. Yeah. Got to have it. Mm. And I think it, I think it will. I think that, you know, the energies that are, are arising on the progressive left, which can be just as toxic as the, as the energies on the, on the progressive or on the, on the populist right. Um, is a, a sign of people's aspiration to do that. Um, and, and I'm gonna, I'm just going as a matter of principle to be, to have faith in, in where that'll take us eventually. And probably it'll take us through some difficult stuff. No doubt. Yeah. Hmm. We need our own, or maybe we're already in it, our own sort of cultural dark night of the soul in order to be purged of some of those old attachments. And I think that's part of what's happening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm recognizing that you'll need to, or we need to end soon. So a couple of questions I like to ask everybody that I'll close sure. up with, unless there's anything that I haven't asked you that you just really wish I would have, that you want to, <laughs> you want to add here before I do that. Let's see what comes out. Okay. All right. So uh, these are kind of like fill in the following phrase or question. So contemplation is self-awareness. 
silence. Well, now I want to let that silence ride and not ask the next question, but <laughs> I'll let people take yes. that take that silence after this podcast is over. Okay. <laughs> the purpose of contemplation is silence. <laughs> I think I know what you're going to say to the next one, but is there a word or a phrase that cuts to the heart of your contemplative experience? It's the same word. It's the experience from which we arise in our being as we come into our body and into which we exhale in our last breath. It's the ground from which everything comes the ultimate experience of the deepest meditation Swamiji would often say is an experience of perfect silence you know it's not wild and crazy experiences um, but a total really total sense of peace and interestingly he used to talk about you know Freud had this notion of these two countervailing forces in life of eros a force for life and thanatos, uh, a desire for death. And a lot of people over the years have looked at that concept of thanatos and just kind of gone, really? And, and I think, you know, Freud misunderstood a bit because I think the thing that is, is the real um, force there is the desire to return to an experience of silence, which is sort of the ultimate expression of our um, desire for self-realization, which I think is the most basic human desire mm. because it's the thing that in our, even in our neurological functioning allows us to transcend, to mm. grow and develop and change. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's that, it's that, thirst for silence and solitude that we have that is so unsupported in the kind of life that we live today. That's really important. Hmm. What I find that I'm reflecting on is that my favorite scriptural verse going back to at least high school that I can consciously remember has always been the story of Elijah in the cave in first Kings where He's looking, he, he's actually waiting for God, been told to go there. Yep. And there's the earthquake, the thunder, the fire, the hail, no God. But then as soon as, there are different translations, but the one I like is the sound of sheer silence, which in and of itself is already a koan. <laughs> um, well, and I, and I, and I think an important thing for people to understand from that story is that, you know, this is sort of the source of the the commonplace saying that um, the commonplace phrase, the still small voice of God in your heart. Yeah. And, you know, so many people live under the tyranny of a critical voice in their mind. And they very often assume that this is the voice of God or the voice of the teacher. Um, and in increasingly these days, I'm just saying to my students outright voice of the devil do not listen to that voice. Yeah. The, the still small voice of God in your conscience is a loving voice. 
It's a motherly voice. It's the voice of a mother gazing at her child's odd behavior with a sense of wonder and curious interest, but never losing that aspect of constant love. One of the deepest experience, spiritual experiences of my life um, happened when I was really mostly out of touch with uh, the yoga tradition for a few years. I was mountaineering as a way to sort of learn to conquer my fear. Mm. And uh, I was on a trip in Peru in uh, Cordillera Blanca. And I had never been in mountains that high before. And, you know, you, you walk across the Altiplano and it's kind of rolling hills like eastern Montana, rolling swells of prairie. And then all of a sudden these gigantic towers of ice come sticking up out of the ground. And it's really a, a kind of a horrifying sight. And we made our base camp and I had volunteered the next day to go up with a party to establish a high camp. And the night before people had uh, been sitting around telling war stories about climbing in the Andes. And we had, it was, it was a really interesting group, including a number of people who had done first ascents in this area that we were in. And so the stories were pretty dramatic, you know, and I was sitting there getting more and more scared by the moment. Went to bed with an enormous sense of anxiety, did not sleep well, had horrible diarrhea all night. And I began to wonder whether I had actually gotten tourista from this, but it, it really was all anxiety. Mm. The next morning I awoke and I started thinking, well, you know, you could just stay in base camp. This is a beautiful area. You could, hike all around. It would, it, would be, it would be a lovely trip just doing that. And all of a sudden, this kind of fatherly voice came up in my mind and said, are you kidding me? You mean to say that you cashed out your retirement savings from your job to take this trip in order to go and sit in a base camp and hike around with the kids? Are you out of your mind? Pack your bag and get your butt on the trail. I had to sort of give myself a kick to get out on the trail that morning. So I went off down the trail like some mopey kid. And I got to a certain point where the trail goes by the side of a lake. And across the lake is this huge mountain and a beautiful tumbling glacier comes from the summit of this mountain into the lake. And about every 10 minutes, an iceberg would calve off this glacier into the lake. It was just extraordinary. And this happened as I was walking. And I was so shocked by the beauty of it. Here's an experience of tapas. I was so shocked by the beauty of it that it it totally shocked me out of my mopey frame of mind. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, this voice in my heart spoke without words and said, I am always with you. The most loving, the most reassuring voice that's the voice of divinity, the voice of grace, the voice of the guru. It's a loving voice, a motherly voice, a quiet voice. It speaks in your heart without words. It doesn't use language. So that's, that's the thing to listen for. Mm. Wow. I can't help but think of the, um, just briefly, the, like the, the, the root of our word Satan Shatan in Hebrew literally means the accuser. And I like to remember that, that that accusational voice in my head 
is not divinity. Thank you, John. That will, that will help me make my point. Yeah. And, but then the Greek word that's used often for the Holy Spirit, especially in the Gospel of John, is parakletos, paraclete, mm-hmm. which literally means advocate. Oh, interesting. So those, it, it parallels what you were just saying. Well, here's, here's another one for you. Yeah. You know, one of the verses of scripture that people like to quote in a meditative context is the 10th verse of the 46th Psalm. Be still and know that I am mm-hmm. God. The verb for be still is repah in Hebrew, which means give up, surrender, be mm. vulnerable, be weak. You know, it's an invitation into that sense of inviolable vulnerability that is another way of talking about the, the, the actual experience of divinity mm. and, and a vulnerability that is not threatening, but rather is something that continuously opens and is new at every moment. You know, that's the real experience of an enlightened mind is as Paramahansa Yogananda said about the experience of his first Samadhi, endless waves of ever new joy, a joy that, that never becomes old or familiar. Mm. It opens in a new way at every second. Mm. I'm not sure we could pick a better spot to pause. <laughs> Isn't that good? Yeah. That's very good. So thank you so much. This was wonderful. You're welcome. And, I'm going to have to follow up with you on some threads in here That's fine. In, our, in our future conversations, but thank you um, for your time and for, for sharing from your own study and experience and relationships. Appreciate it. Thank you for good questions. Yeah. Good questions are powerful. Yes. Till next time. All right. Take care, Tom. You too. Thanks. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks again, everybody, for listening. And you can find all the show notes and info about Stephen's book and a little bit more about him over at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash episode seven. That's the word episode and the number seven with no spaces. I'm always grateful for any support you can give, including donations to support this free media, which can be donated at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash donate or by helping to write reviews on iTunes or sharing your love for the podcast with others in person or on social media. Everything helps and is always much appreciated. I'll be back with a new episode soon with the Reverend Matthew Wright, an Episcopalian priest, a student of Cynthia Borjolt, and a highly regarded retreat leader himself. Until next time, may you be well and continue to deepen your contemplative practice. Thanks again. (laughs) 